Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome to Episode 60 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. We had a busy weekend at the West Virginia Book Festival in Charleston last weekend. Got to see quite a number of West Virginia Writers members, many of whom I've met at previous summer conferences. We also picked up a few new members to the organization as people stopped by our table to check out the brand new contest entry forms for the 2012 Writing Contest. If you didn't happen to be there yourself to pick one up, those forms are now available at our website, wvwriters.org. Just go to the contest page and you can print them out from yourself, both the adult form and the New Mountain Voices student contest form. We'll have more information about both of those as the starting date for that contest approaches. This week, though, I thought it would be good to play some of the audio that I recorded at the festival, and I decided to start with the panel that West Virginia writers produced called A Quest for Humor, West Virginia Style. The panel is made up of four humor writers from our state whose names will probably be familiar to you if you're a member of our organization or at least a reader of the Charleston Gazette. Now, I also recorded video of this panel, which contains some fairly funny things you're not going to be able to catch just by listening to the audio, but I'm not going to spoil those for you here, in case you'd like to watch that when we get the video uploaded to our YouTube channel. The uh, one thing I did find funny that you will be able to hear, or rather won't, is that during the course of my introduction for the panel itself and my introduction of the moderator, Steve Goff, I neglected to introduce myself. Ah, well. Can't get everything right. Discussion. Um, before we introduce the MC for the panel discussion, or panel moderator, is that your official title? Uh, whatever you want. We'll go with it. Right. I'll tell you a little bit about West Virginia Writers. How many of you, I recognize some faces in here, how many of you are members of West Virginia Writers already? Quite a few, quite a few. Uh, we've been around since 1977, and since then we've become the state's largest nonprofit, all volunteer. Writers organization dedicated to both the writers of West Virginia and Appalachia in general. Uh, every year we hold a writers conference the second weekend of June at Cedar Lake Conference Center in Ripley. Uh, it's always an amazing time. We invite you to um, check out the lineup of people who are going to be coming. I believe Lee Maynard's on the docket for this year as well. But we also have a writers contest which begins each January, January 2nd but we make the debut of the Writer's Contest entry form here at the West Virginia Book Festival each year. And so we have both an adult contest, which has about 14 different categories in it, including the category of humor, which is one of the ones that rotates in and out and is back this year. In fact, we have a couple of three members of the panel this year who've won many awards in the humor category for West Virginia writers in the past. We also have the New Mountain Voices Student Contest for grades 1 through 12, and that is um, a contest that is free to enter for children from West Virginia in those grades. So we invite you to go to a, the West Virginia Writers table and uh, check that out. Um, the fellow who is going to be introducing some of the panelists here, all the, panel, the, all the panelists here today, including the winners of our contest previously, is Mr. Steve Goff. He's a comedian, actor, and writer. He's taught creativity and improv workshops for over 20 years and performed for three decades on college campuses in comedy clubs, coffee houses, up and down the East Coast, and has appeared with folks like Jeff Foxworthy and uh, David Brenner as well. In uh, 2011, he was a workshop presenter at our summer conference and did several workshops on improv, and in fact led uh, myself and Diane and Terry in uh, some improvisation 
for uh, some of the entertainment at uh, the summer conference this past year, uh, dragging some of us against our will onto the stage, as the, the case may be. Not me. <laughs> Steve is, is an improvisator as well. Uh, he actually has taken classes at Second City in Chicago and has enrolled in their writing program, and classes for that are going to start in 2012. He wrote and directed a play called Love Stinks and Other Reality-Based Observations, and that had a sold-out run at the Monagalia Arts Center. And he's uh, an accomplished character actor as well. Clarksburg native, and he's a graduate of the West Virginia University School of Journalism, has a master's in public administration. Uh, Steve Doff, I turn things over to you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> lies, lies, lies. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Great turnout. I hope you had a chance to go over to the used book sale and been to some other events uh, today. Um, I've got a little preamble before we get into this, and then we're going to introduce the panelists, and uh, I've asked each of them to bring uh, a piece of their writing to share, and we'll go from there. Um, and I do, I have a bit of mimic in me, and I'm from Clarksburg, and I have always thought that the Mason-Dixon line should probably be about Ripley, because when you get... Ripley down, the accent gets thicker, there's grits on the menu, there's always sugar in the tea, and there's just a lot, football is more important, so on and so forth. And I might slip into something, and I'm doing it right now, so just bear with me. Uh, when I accepted the assignment of mounting an expedition into West Virginia humor, I knew it was going to be tricky. As I dug and dug into the topic, I kept verifying to myself what I already knew. West Virginia humor is an irregular thing. And for funny, irregular is usually pretty good. Irregular words, irregular places, irregular people. Usually irregular is pretty good for funny. But when your assignment is to grab hold of something as irregular as West Virginia humor and pin it down for an hour so people can talk about it and poke at it, it's a very slippery deal indeed. I knew it was going to, I was going to need some help, so I went to my first resources at home, and I have a really nice, I'm a big fan of Roy Blunt, Georgia boy, uh, has a volume called uh, Roy Blunt's Book of Southern Humor, and I thought, well, I'll just dig into Roy's introduction, and that'll get me started. Well, uh, and I thought it might be some help to me, but on the very first page of Roy Blunt's Book of Southern Humor, it says introduction, and then the very first word of the book of Southern Humor says introduction. Here's what I figured. The Confederacy plus Kentucky. <laughs> See, right away we got a problem heading in that Southern Humor direction. Now, the Confederacy <coughs> plus Kentucky. We all know our Civil War history. Yes, we were part of the Confederacy for a time, but I like to think we made a series of pretty good decisions and ended up in a state of our own. Uh, and I double-checked Mr. Blunt's book after that, and not one single West Virginia author in that book of Southern Humor. We didn't fit. We don't fit into a lot of things. We don't fit into a lot of regular organizing principles. Just ask the WVU Athletic Department about that right now. <laughs> we don't fit. So, then we have to go our own way, the West Virginia way. And we do it like we want to do it here in the 304. You've got to see me do my hip-hop version of that, but <laughs> I'll spare you. So we do have a bit of an attitude, a chip on our shoulder, and we do champion the underdog. Um, and you know the characterization geographically. We are too far north to be southern, too far south to be northern, we're surely not Eastern as it relates to literary types up and down the East Coast. We're not Western. We're not even Midwestern. The cheese stands alone. And we like it like that. So, I did uh, much better research when I went to the natural Appalachia. That's where we fit. That's where the culture fits. But then I'm still wrestling with the notion, is there really something called West Virginia humor? And it got slipperier and slipperier as I, as I looked into this. I mean, has the United States become so homogenized that we're all telling the same jokes, the same way, in the same style? Or is, is, does popular culture prevail? And then there's the tricky part of what constitutes humor. Because as we know, 
Almost everything is funny to somebody, but there's nothing that makes everybody laugh. Take, for instance, my performance so far. <laughs> it's slippery and irregular. Now, we all use and enjoy humor in our, in our personal lives, and it's part of who we are, and I'm from West Virginia, so I can't say I have a West Virginia sense of humor, but I, but I think I do to a certain extent. But I've come up with three things that I think humor helps us all do. One, it helps you get even with life. <laughs> Two, it helps you live with yourself. And three, it can keep you from going insane. But you can't pen it down or hold it down, but you can poke it. I mean, poking fun is just another name for a humor delivery system. It's just plain hard to define, and ultimately, it is truly multifaceted. West Virginia humor is wry and dark, starting to sound like bread. It's mean and cruel. It can be uplifting and joyous or just plain observational. And this assignment verified for me a quote that I had heard long ago, and boy, it came home uh, truer than ever. It's from E.B. White, editor of The New Yorker, on defining humor. And he said, humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. And the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. You see, most people really don't want to know how humor works. They're just really glad that it does. They, uh, they don't want to look behind the curtain, they don't want to look under the hood, and they don't want to look at frog innards to find out what is funny. They just know it's funny. Um, let's see. Some writers, such as our panelists here, or many writers, you don't want to even examine your own funny because if you look too close, you might lose your juju or your mojo or whatever it is you got going. And speaking of that frog, it reminds me of a story. There's an old guy doing his morning walk, 78, 80 years old, and a frog hops out and says, hey, buddy, pick me up. The guy picks up the frog, and the frog says, kiss me, I'll turn into a beautiful blonde, and I'll make crazy love to you. The old guy looks at the frog and stuffs him in his pocket. Keeps on walking. A little bit later, the frog wheels out and says, did you hear me? All you gotta do is kiss me, and I turn into this beautiful blonde, and I'll make crazy love to you. The old guy says, puts it back in. Goes a little further, and the frog finally gets says, Are you nuts? Kiss me, and we were gonna have crazy sex. The old guy looks at the frog and says, You know, at my age, I'm just happy to have a talking frog. <laughs> <laughs> and I know how he feels. You see, I'm on a quest for humor, West Virginia style. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to introduce you to my talking frogs. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, let's see here. The order we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce uh, one by one. They're going to do a reading, then we'll go to the next panelist. Uh, Rick, if you don't mind, I'll start with you down there. Rick Steelhammer has worked as a staff writer for the Charleston Gazette since 1973. He was educated at Antioch College and writes a column uh, for Out There that takes him to every part of West Virginia, exploring the curious and the not-so-curious aspects of the state. And as curious as it seems, Rick is the author of West Virginia Curiosities, Quirky Characters, Roadside Oddities, and other offbeat stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Steelhammer. Thanks everybody for coming. It, uh, it's uh, kind of a, uh, an ego booster to see so many people here when me child, uh, best-selling authors, appearing at the same time. And uh, oh, yes. <laughs> he canceled. Uh, he, I actually we had a chance to to meet him over in the in the green room a little bit ago, and uh, he's a very nice guy. And uh, I got to ask the question I wanted to ask, which was, uh, what do you think about? Tom Cruise portraying Jack Reacher in the, his first movie, and uh, I don't know. I just uh, I, the guy that jumps up on Oprah's sofa just doesn't seem the right guy to play Jack Reacher. <laughs> just, that image just—I I don't think I'll ever get rid of that. But yeah, I um, get my script here for a second. We're supposed to do a a, a, a reading of one of our, uh, in my case, column. <coughs> I do a, I do a Sunday humor column in the. What's it called? The Sunday Gazette Mail. 
Um, <coughs> once a week mostly, and this last week I was vacationing in North Carolina, and uh, I just, just this, this table before they put the tablecloth on reminds me a lot of the furniture I had in my motel down there. I was trying to, trying to figure out what column to read because, uh, you know, if, if you write them, they all kind of look horrible to you after a while uh, and, and you, when you drag them out again. <coughs> I was driving home from work last night at about midnight or close to it, and uh, uh, I live out in Cross Lanes, the artist colony of West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> and I have like, like, like four zigzags going up the driveway to my home, and I and a deer come, came across the road at every single one of those corners. And so I, I was reminded of this column I did a few years ago about uh, involving deer and cars. And it, it was written a little bit after Christmas, so you know, put that into the time frame context here. <coughs> uh, probably the most frequently asked questions in West Virginia at this time of year are, are you ready for Christmas? And have you killed your buck yet? Uh, <laughs> Now that buck season and Christmas have both come and passed, I can officially respond in the affirmative to both, even though I may have taken a day or two beyond the official deadline in completing both of those tasks. Oh, sorry, I was getting away from the microphone here. Uh, the last of my outgoing Christmas packages didn't make it to the post office until December 23rd, and are probably still working their way through the system, unraveling like the harried postal workers who strain to patch them up and read their hastily scrawled labels. As to the buck I killed, it was an adrenaline-producing experience, but I can't say it was the most fulfilling of my outdoor sports career, seeing as I was in my car at the time. <laughs> you know, some people get up uh, hours before dawn and drive hundreds of miles, hike into the backcountry and climb high into trees for a chance to bear down on a buck. Well, uh, as it turned out, I bore down on mine on the way to work the week after buck season ended. I was driving 70 miles an hour past a huge chemical plant on an interstate highway, smack in the middle of the state's largest uh, population area. I did everything I could think of in the millisecond that was allotted to me to avoid striking the white-tailed buck, but uh, I guess great minds think alike. The, the evasive action swerve I made when the buck pogo sticked over the guardrail and into the forelane brought me exactly to the point where the deer veered to avoid me. So needless to say, the, uh, the buck stopped there. Oh, <laughs> nice. I, uh, I instantly sent the deer to its happy hunting grounds where if there's any justice, there'll be a year-round open season on humans in cars and camouflage. <laughs> then I executed a 180-degree spin that ended in a collision with a guardrail that allowed me to bend, spindle, and mutilate the fenders and doors that, uh, that escaped impact with the buck. <laughs> my, my only injury was a mild scalding from the coffee that spilled from the cup I'd been holding through the whole event. <laughs> I, I took time to finish the remnants of my cup before getting out of the car to see what the damage was. In doing so, I went through a series of what-ifs in my mind. What if my dog hadn't pooped on the downstairs carpet delaying my departure that morning? <laughs> would I have missed the deer entirely, or would I have taken it right through the windshield? <coughs> I'd left home in a bad mood, angry at the dog and upset with myself for being behind in my work and my holiday shopping and social obligations. As I contemplated what could have happened had I struck the deer in mid-leap or encountered another vehicle during my post-collision spin-out, those thoughts seemed kind of petty and puny. It was a cool, crisp winter day. I was alert and alive and grateful and in good health and apparently good hands. It was a good day to be alive. As it turned out, the insurance company, the body shop, and the car rental company all did everything they were supposed to and more. All in all, it was a valuable life lesson. I just wish it hadn't cost me a buck to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the table. I was getting those those college days particle board. Because most of my furniture was particle board until recently. Um, we're going to mix it up with uh, the female male. Is that okay, Diane? Boy, girls, sure. Here, uh, Diane Tarantini is a graduate of West Virginia University's Perry Isaac Reed School of Journalism. She has written columns for the Morgantown Dominion Post, the West Virginia Writers Newsletter, and she hosts a very popular online blog called Caught Butterflies. It's real good. I, I recommend it. This award-winning inspirational humorist is in the final stages of editing her debut novel, 
Confessions of a Life Half Lived. She's our Energizer Bunny, Diane Tarantino. <laughs> shorter um, pieces that don't include bathroom humor. Raise your hand if you're cool with bathroom humor. You know, Jeff Fuller once said, um, if you're really anxious about um, writing something because people might read it, then go ahead and write it. Do you understand that? If it, you know, people like to look at dead bucks on the road. They just <laughs> You like to read and hear the people that'll say the stuff that you're not comfortable saying. So, oh, no, I'm scared. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm originally from Huntington, and I now live in Morgantown. I've lost most of my southern accent, but when I drive down 79 or have a cocktail, it comes back. Um, so uh, I have three older brothers, and that's why the bathroom humor, right? Yeah. Yes, I've read your, yes. The I story about boogers. <laughs> yeah, what were they, what were your brothers called? Oh, the KKK. Yes. Did that stand for? No. no. It's fiction, it's fiction, bro. Yeah, it's for Still Life with Plums. Highly recommend. Okay, um, this was a piece uh, I wrote about uh, my grade school in Huntington. It's Gallagher Elementary. It doesn't exist anymore, but my brother has a couple bricks from it. Um, Mr. Lee, and this is not the beginning, this is just a, a bounce into it. Mr. Lee was our principal. Remember that saying, the principal is your pal? Mr. Lee looked like a bulldog. Like the one on the Purina dog food commercial. This is Dog Child's finest dog. <laughs> Mr. Lee made it his personal mission to make every child at Gallagher School an adventurous eater. Eat the nutritious before the delicious. Like there was something delicious. The worst day of the month was liver day. The school would stink to high heaven. Round about 11 o'clock, I'd start poking at my uvula with the Pepto-Bismol pink eraser of my orangey-yellow number two pencil. Tried to make myself barf so I wouldn't have to taste the liver. Mr. Lee would stand over your shoulder till you took just one bite. The thing was, the liver looked like a square BM. See, see, my mom was a registered nurse, and that's what she made us call poop. It smelled like it, too. If I'd been unsuccessful triggering my gag reflex, there was always Timmy Howard. He was the only kid in school who liked to liver. For a quarter, he'd eat yours. And this, this is further down the piece. I think my sixth grade social studies teacher ate something that made her sick. Her skin was super bumply all the time like she had hives or something. She tried to cover it up with lots of face makeup and cream rouge, the color of Bozo the Clown's nose. You could still see the lumps though, kind of looked like toad skin. I had to mouth breathe whenever I went up to her desk to ask a question, cause her perfume was rank. She said it was wind song, but all us kids, we called it break wind song. Her lips looked like the Jokers, but she didn't smile much. I reckon I was partly to blame for that. See, I was ornery. No one knew it because I made good grades. No one thinks the smart kids ever do anything wrong, but I did. I had the world's A number one best spitball system ever. First, I made my ammo. I'd tear off little bits of notebook paper and put them in my mouth. When they were good and soggy, I'd roll them into little balls just a tiny bit bigger than a BB. Then I'd coat them in Elmer's glue. The last step was covering them in pencil shavings. When I had a dozen or so of my super awesome spit wads, I'd work on the delivery system. I'd pry the stopper off my big pen with my teeth. Couldn't use my fingernails because I bet them way far down. I'd grab a hold of the writing tip and pull it and the ink tube out. Then real sneaky-like, I'd load the clear plastic cylinder with a spitball. When the teacher went to write on the blackboard, I'd ready, aim, fire. The spitwad would fly through the air and get trapped in the adhesive that held her hair together. <laughs> See, every day after lunch, she'd spray her hair real good with a blast from her big pink can of Aquanet. The spitwads would dangle on the back of her hair for a little while, then one by one, they'd fall to the floor like little woody booger balls. <laughs> the hardest part 
heart was trying not to bust a gut. I had to bite my lip big time. If I laughed, I'd get caught. If I got caught, I'd probably have to go to the principal's office. I'd never been in Mr. Lee's office, but I was pretty sure it'd be scary. He'd probably get in my face and I'd keel over from the terribleness of his breath. I was sure he had little bits of liver between his teeth, decomposing at various rates. Worse even than his halitosis was the possibility that my safety and fire patrol privileges might be yanked. No more trip to Candon Park at the end of school year? Perish the thought. You coated your spitballs with glue. I like it. Okay. Um, Terry McNeemer. T.W. Terry McNeemer is a humor and short story novel novelist from Stonewood, West Virginia. His work reflects the humanity, humor, and conscience of everyday life, often in a strong Appalachian voice, has been featured in John Hopkins University Scribble Press, Young Women's Monologues from Contemporary Plays, Mountain Echoes and Traditions, the literary journal of Fairmont State University. Terry is also the author of the novella Ragdoll Angel, an excellent read, the fictional story of a 1952 kidnapping in a West Virginia town. Ladies and gentlemen, Terry McNamer. Steve for moderating the panel and I always enjoy his uh, openings and his deliveries. He's a real pro. appreciate your help. Um, I grew up in an Irish family. Marie and I were talking about that earlier and you know we, uh, we tend to make fun of things to get through it. You know it's easier to do that than to and uh, so when I write humor, it's, it's, it's a real natural, easy thing for me to do. I, I wrote this. This is a story about a little girl and her mother who go to live with a, a coal baron as a housekeeper. And uh, they live with an aunt in a chauffeur's room over a garage. And uh, her aunt's taken it upon herself to uh, teach the girl about the ways of the town instead of living out in the middle of nowhere. And, so this is uh, the religious aspect of it, this scene from this book, Ragdoll Angel. It's called Religion According to Doreen. Sundays were Doreen's day off. Before Carol's arrival, Doreen spent her Sundays in bed or at the Cloverleaf Inn watching billiards or shuffleboard matches. These days, Doreen and Carol spent Sundays searching for a good church to join. Church. Doreen decided it was a good place to raise a kid. They started out with the Presbyterian Church, where her boss spent six Sundays each year. Doreen spotted a fellow housekeeper that she despised, and because of her gospel mouth and know-it-all attitude, Doreen and Carol moved on to the Methodist Church. Although Doreen had been raised in a Methodist, she considered this congregation a little uppity. Carol thought they were just fine. Every Sunday, a new experience. The next Sunday, they were off to yet another church. This time, it was the Pentecostal Light of the Lord Church over on Fox Grape Road. Amen. Carol, <laughs> Carol liked the Sunday school and the singing. They used a guitar instead of a piano. She thought that was pretty neat. The Pentecostal sermon, just like others, started slow, fervent, solemn, kind of quiet-like. Then the pastor's tongue sharpened and, began, and he began to peel those sins away like dry skin on a fat onion, layer after layer, just to get to the good. Sitting next to Carol this day was an old bald man with new teeth. At the end of each of the pastor's breathless litanies, the old man yelled, Amen, brother, and as one might expect, his new teeth whistled just a bit. <laughs> as the pastor neared the essence of his message, the old man with the whistling teeth became so incensed that only whistling could be heard. Doreen was annoyed. Carol was amused. The old man started to respond again, and Carol noticed that the whistling slowed and stopped. As she watched wide-eyed, he reached up, pulled out the new teeth, dropped them into his pocket of his jacket, and with increased further, shouted, Amen. Well, poor little Carol cracked up. As the toothless Christian turned toward her, she had a direct view of his bald head, gum, spittle, and spirit. She thought this was hilarious. As she giggled uncontrollably, 
She also tried to apologize to her aunt. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, she hiccuped out in between bursts of laughter. Doreen knew Carol well enough to understand. Were they not, after all, cut from the same piece of cloth? Unfortunately, no one else in the church understood. <laughs> As she watched and giggled, the old man opened his mouth a bit wider and cocked his head to the side like a confused dog. With, with that, the hapless child lost her last shred of control. Carol's high-pitched laughter mixed with the apology blended together in the cacophony of ecclesiastical madness. It was at that precise moment that old Baldy knew in his heart that the child was speaking in tongues. <laughs> he did the only thing he knew to do. He began to interpret. <laughs> he reached out with a shaking hand and grabbed Carol's arm and looking toward the heavens began to incantate. Speak through me and this child sweet Jesus. <laughs> Carol blew yet another court. In the middle of her third attempt to apologize to her aunt, Doreen finally understood what Carol was trying to say. She was in dire need of a restroom. <laughs> After a few moments, Doreen was able to wrestle Carol's arm away from the old-timer in mid-translation and hurry Carol toward the ladies' room. Still shouting apologies mixed with high-pitched laughter, Carol's tears streamed down her cheeks like small rivers. As they passed through the church, everyone wanted to touch the blessed child. <laughs> Many closed their eyes to ponder Carol's cries as they echoed through the old wooden church. Some repeated them. The pastor knew it was a prophecy. The church was filled with joy, awe, and elation. When she heard the pastor repeat and, Cheryl, and chant Carol's phrase, Doreen was filled with dread. <laughs> Gotta pee, gotta pee. Gotta pee. <laughs> Carol held as they passed down the aisle, out the door, and until they reached the outhouse beside the church. On the way home, they remained silent except for a few residual giggles from Carol. When Doreen laughed, she looked toward the window so the child wouldn't see her. And as they pulled into the driveway, Carol said, when are we going back there? <laughs> we'll go to the Pentecostal church when things are really bad. <laughs> In the kitchen, Helen asked, how was it? Carol grabbed the lapel of her jacket with one hand, raised the other toward heaven, and in a fervent dialect, she had heard that morning proclaimed, friends and neighbors, I come forward today to share something with you, and that something is Jesus. There'll be no more of that, young lady, said Helen. After Carol went to change her clothes, Helen looked at Doreen and asked, where did she get this stuff? Doreen shrugged as she reached under the sink for the bottle. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. And last but not least, uh, Karen Fuller. Karen is a lifestyle columnist for the Charleston Gazette. First began writing in 1997, shortly after the birth of her best source of material, her daughter Celeste. Some of you were here and we got to, to meet and see Celeste. Uh, in the years since, Karen's columns have uh, always been selected as one of the top three in each, uh, uh, each year by the West Virginia Press Association. But in 2003, she was awarded first place general interest in the USA by the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. Uh, along with her columns, Karen's stories have appeared in such publications as Woman's World, Appalachian Herald, Heritage, Front Porch, Atlanta Baby, and Family Circle. Ladies and gentlemen, Karen Fuller. Now there's a catch to her to reading her material. You see, Karen and I had a bet, and I lost. And the deal was that I would read whatever she brought today. I am nervous. And should have known better. It sounds like our bet. The title of this is I Should Have Known Better. Let's see how this goes. I should have known better, but it was my day off. A mental health day. A day intended for bumming with mom. I didn't want to wear makeup and fix my hair. <laughs> didn't want to wear clothes unless they were comfortable. It was a day off from everything, including primping. So, ignoring mom's warning about what was certain to happen if I went out with hair untamed and naked face in my faded blue sweatshirt and baggy butt jeans, I ventured forth. It was Friday, I reasoned. Everyone would be in school or at work. 
one guess what happened. Other than organized reunions, I've rarely run into former classmates of mine until that particular Friday. That is, when I ran into five. Five who probably think life must have been hard on poor Karen these last three years. Oh, but it didn't stop there. I also ran into two former co-workers, one ex-boss, two neighbors, and a couple from church. It was almost as bad as the time that I ran to the store during lunch hour for the sole purpose of buying some... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> been set up. <laughs> Feminine protection product. <laughs> I've always been thrifty, so when I saw a big box of protection for nearly the same price as the discreet size, I went for it. I want to emphasize the box wasn't just big. It was huge. A case. A huge turquoise case with the brand name written on all sides and letters so large that they could be read blocks away. I had to carry it with both hands. It was awkward, but I didn't mind. I was saving money. One guess what happened. I was heading for checkout, trying to look cool, while carrying enough tightly tubed cotton to protect the Rockettes for a year. <laughs> I like that so much I might read it again. <laughs> when I heard someone call out my name. <clears throat> it was Greg, my first boyfriend. <laughs> I glanced madly about, searching the surrounding racks for somewhere to ditch the box, but it was too late. So there we stood, awkwardly trying to make conversation while pretending <coughs> the giant blue box didn't exist. <laughs> Still, that wasn't as bad as the time I was talking with the cashier while he rang up my groceries. I don't remember the conversation, just that it was funny and I was enjoying myself. I wish I could block out what happened next. I pulled out my checkbook, was digging through my purse, when my hand came upon what I assumed was my pen. It was long, cylindrical, smooth, but it wouldn't write. I thought it was just out of ink. Until I saw the look of horror on the cast. One guess, what happened? It wasn't a pen I pulled from my purse. Make a bet with this woman. <laughs> okay, that brings us to what? How are we doing on time? Uh, okay, we uh, we're gonna do some discussion. I, I have some questions that I, I sent the panel. Some of these, and, I, and some of them I didn't. And we're gonna leave some time for some Q and A and and go from there. Um, the first thing I want to ask is, and it's kind of the, the elephant in the room, going back to my introduction. Is there a West Virginia humor? Is it Southern humor? Is it different from that? Uh, what makes it, what makes West Virginia humor unique? It is it's a hard question because it it's, it is it gets back to that frog thing. When you start looking at it, um, it kind of slows it down because it. I think you know we're fine with making fun of ourselves, but don't anybody else do it. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, like any like any other ethnic kind of humor. It's, it's okay if, if you or somebody like you says it, but probably somebody from Ohio says it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I love Ohio is like my favorite place to pick on. Do you have Ohio like, jokes? I, I have Ohio jokes. My brother lives in Ohio. If anybody yeah, wonders why I pick on yeah. so much, it's just, it's, I'm getting hurt. And I've actually got email mail from people because they're like, why do you pick on Ohio so much? Well, it's like, well, now you just give me more reason to pick on Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with them, and I agree with the whole Ohio statement. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, those people never stay home. You always see them on the road somewhere. They don't even like them. Yeah, yeah. You know, related to that, and uh, Phyllis Moore's here. Let's hear it for Phyllis Moore. Thank you for Phyllis is the maven of West Virginia. If you've never seen a maven, there she is. Uh, she uh, helped me out a lot with the research on this and tossed me things to, to chew on. And, and one of the things that uh, she sent me was an interview that was done with. Uh, the author George Ella Lyon. I wasn't familiar with her, uh, with her work, but um, uh, there's a statement here that really jumped out at me, and I got to thinking, 
But it, it also reminded me of some of the criticism that Lee Maynard got with Crumb, and that has to do where, where you, if you're making fun of your own, and uh, sometimes it gets too close to the bone. And, and I like this, it says, uh, uh, somebody was criticizing that you, you, you put too much violence in there, ugliness and despair. It looks bad on us, they said. We're not like that. Uh, and they assumed they were right. What she said was, that the idea was that literature is not reported. You, you can use it as art. And the example that I love was, she said, if Kafka had lived in Hazard, Kentucky, just take that for a second. <laughs> when he published the Metamorphosis, outsiders would have praised him saying, see, we always knew those people were bugs. <laughs> and the insiders would have taken him down the road because they would have said, it was bad enough being hillbillies, now we're cockroaches. <laughs> <clears throat> so when you, when you find a target, when you're making fun of somebody, I mean, is it coming out of love or are you trying to, um, when, you, when you pick a target and kind of do humor with it. Sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's just in front of you and you can't help it. <laughs> it's it's like a it's like a found treasure. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw that and and it's funny. You know, I, I, I wrote a story about a guy with a pet pig and he thought it was a Vietnamese potbelly pig but it turned into a hog and they still kept it and he still has it. And I found that it's a true story and I wrote about it and mm -hmm. you know like they just fall from the sky and I grab it. <laughs> yeah. Rick Bragg, there was a, a uh, book panel took place in New Orleans and Rick Bragg from Alabama who was the uh, the co-writer with Jessica Lynch on her book and uh, Rick Bragg's a, a really great writer all over with the shout neighbors man so on so forth. He said that, uh, <coughs> that the topic was can you be poking fun at your people and he says you can't do that what you have to do is first poke fun at yourself, square in the eye, and accept you are of a place and not just from it. And, and I think that's, that's kind of what these folks do, that you, you know that they're not an outsider coming in, making fun of a region or a particular trait or characteristic. Okay, that, that was the one I wanted to get out of the way, but it was kind of the one that I felt needed to ask. Um, now I'll ask the panel. I, I've noticed when I was going through your work that all of you <coughs> write about animals or your pets and I'm sure there are a lot of pet people here um, what is it about our critters that make us laugh and they just rich material <coughs> do you have everybody have pets dogs well part of it is, 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 is desperation you can't think of anything else <laughs> <laughs> and, Good answer. and you think of something, something stupid your dog did for, for a week and uh, did you write about it everybody likes stupid love and they can't talk those are two really good things to have in a friend you know? yes you can project it everything yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and I just um, my friends just talk 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 <laughs> your friends do yeah yeah I don't have pets so. yeah. one of my favorite stories ever was um, Karen's I just washed my hair and I can't do a thing with it she got bunnies we had bunnies first right yeah you had bunnies first um, we rescued a rabbit in, Bridge, in my mom's neighborhood in Bridgeport, and we weren't sure of the gender until seven days later when it brought forth seven young, and then we were pretty sure it was a girl. Um, and, or a pimp. Oh my God. Yeah, so yeah, we. I told you you're not allowed to ever bathe a rabbit. It's just any vet will tell you you're not. I think it's because the fur is so dense. That if you would do it in a colder month, that they would they go like, outside die cold. in the rain. They live in you know. Yeah. 
and non-domestic ones. But she bathed her rabbits and they were quite fond of the experience. They flirted. <laughs> they, asked for, they asked for wine. <laughs> they broke the no-talk rule and they asked for wine. They were all buoyant and stuff and it was just amazing to watch these. He put a rabbit down in a warm tub and they acted like they'd been doing it for years. I mean, they just knew that it was it was great. And afterwards, we wrapped them in a towel and we dried their hair. And, Did and you get a column out of it? Or? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but uh, I, I also got hate. Because somebody sent me a letter and they said, you never should wash your hair. And I'm like, you never should wash your hair. Never should wash your hair. Never. And they're like, um, I'm like, what do they do outside? They're not wearing little trench coats. <laughs> you know, they, they need to be clean. And just the other day, for the record, it was pouring down rain. I went outside. Our rabbits have a free run of our backyard during the summer. And they're too large to get through the fence. And everything we have gets cut. That's a big bunny. That's a big bunny. I'm from West Virginia. I've eaten I've never eaten. I won't anymore now that they're my pet. Well, I, I went out to check on them and they were both outside in the rain on their own. They could have gone inside. They chose to be in the rain. So. You're not supposed to wash them with anything. So oh, oil the oil on the oils? Oh, so somebody knows. Well, I didn't use any. Same thing with hamsters or bulls. Really? Calling all pets. <laughs> Let's keep this in this room, okay? Air <laughs> stays in this room. I already heard the I already heard the word uvula used in public. I was 18 before I got did, quit getting excited about that. But, um, whatever, I'm slow. Um, let me ask it, and each of you, I'd like to ask separately or to, to respond to this. Um, all what we're doing, all writing, is storytelling. And that's what your columns are, and the novellas, and even the blog. We're all telling stories. Um, who are some of your influences, either in your family as a family member, or somebody in popular culture that, that called you to, to, to writing stories? My dad was a loved comedians, and Jonathan Winters, and you know, just whatever it is that kind of got, got you an interest in, or did you just kind of show up on its own in your life? Rick? But, yeah, well, I never even thought about being a, a columnist ever. I was, of course, I've been a newspaper reporter since I got out of college. But uh, um, we used to have a, when we first got computers in the newsroom, one of the ancient systems we had had a, um, I don't know what you call it, a, like kind of a storage place to park stories before you know what to do with them called Common Cube. And, uh, Nobody used it, so some of us reporters would like like write a chapter of a story, and then somebody would do the second chapter, and then somebody would add a chapter to that, and you get a <coughs> you get a funny thing going, usually making fun of the bosses or, uh, or people in politics or something like that. And uh, and Ned Shilton, who was then our publisher, was reading those, and I get luckily he had a sense of humor, because uh, <laughs> I I just written one where he was. Telling ordering Jim Hot to do an expose on honeybees because he realized how they were being exploited by beekeepers. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know. And anyway, he, he asked me to say, "Look, if you're spending all the time writing this this stuff, why don't you at least put it in the paper and, uh, and try not to make fun of me as too often?" And, uh, and so that's that's how I got into it because I never really even thought about it. But, but I did like uh, when I was growing up, uh, Irma Bondack. Uh, my mom was really a big fan and. Uh, and I, the very first newspaper I worked for was the Dayton Journal Herald. Oh yeah. And uh, I think she, I think she was done with it then, but she, you know, uh, she might, her column still might have appeared there, even though she didn't work there, because uh, I think she was on one of those Phil, Don Phil Donahue TV show, maybe something like that mm -hmm. at, that, at that time. But anyway, I liked her a lot, and I liked Art Buckball, and uh, but that's, I mean, those are about the only people I knew who were calling us. Terry, how about you? But oh, it, you know, I grew up with the Irish humor at home, uh, influenced by my grandfather and my father, and and, um, and I've always loved brash, rank humor. I draw it from you know the Three Stooges, the uh, Buster Keaton, all his stuff is jolting, and and then right up through the ages with. Jonathan Winters was was a, a genius. Uh, I like Richard Pryor. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I 
like the I, I like the shock effect. Yeah, Richard Pryor just blew my world apart. I, I wanted to do comedy when I said that, but some some people were so good at what they do, they intimidate you. You don't want to try it because they're that good. But uh, Diane, how about you? Um, we're talking about influences? Yeah, just okay. early influences. My dad was a really funny guy. He taught psychology at Marshall for years. I never sat in his classroom, but people said he was like George Carlin. I'm assuming that's without the cousin. Um, and I had three brothers, and they were all funny. And as a family, we would sit every night, and we would watch television. And it was Archie Bunker, and it was MASH, and it was Sonny and Cher, and it was Carol Burnett. And then later when you're in... College, it's Saturday Night Live, so that's some of the stuff. Okay. Karen? Um, I have a very um, odd family. When I was maybe third grade or so, I was a, a young, I loved writing, and one of the first things I wrote, well, I had a, a turtle collection. I had live turtles, I had toy turtles, little stuffed turtles. I was really into turtles. And my mother, who's one of the funniest people I know, was out walking in the woods one day and she found a dead turtle. And it wasn't just dead, it had been in the sun for a long time. And so all the little parts, it had turned into a skeleton. And so mom went and got a box and she put all the pieces in the box. And then for Christmas that year, <laughs> I got the box. And it said right on the lid, Build your own turtle kit. Oh. Just, oh. just add meat. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like one of the earliest stories I ever wrote about in school, and it got a lot of attention from the teacher. I think. I bet it did. <laughs> Dead turtle. Yeah. Mom was never looked at the same. Which <laughs> but I mean, it was one of these things that um, you know, it was one of the first things I, I enjoyed writing about. Mm -hmm. I just have always, I've always, I've never wanted to do anything but write. That's the only thing I ever wanted. And my my parents are very funny people. They don't think they know it. Um, my husband, is in the back. Uh, he is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Everybody else thinks he's serious, but he's not. <laughs> and my daughter, we think she's a storyteller, but I think she's just really a higher. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she comes up with such good ones that you know it's really hard not to go, ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I've just always been around um, funny people. I wish I could be as fast as some of them. I, I was when I was looking at the, uh, just the, the, the nature, uh, nature of, of West Virginia humor and the folks who were known <coughs> for it. Because a lot of West Virginia writers really weren't, you know, the, the Jim Comstock and the West, uh, West Virginia hillbilly. But you know. Great names in comedy such as Soupy Sales and Don Knotts and uh, Bill Lepp, who uh, always wins the Liars Contest, and uh, Little Jimmy Dickens, you know, made a little bird paradise fly up your nose. And yeah, yeah, <coughs> West Virginia guy. Um, shifting gears a little bit, and that leads to the question. I also noticed as I read, looked into your works, that all of you, you're not just exclusively humorous. You, you can also tackle heavy topics. Uh, you've all gone there or serious or or reported. And I'm just wondering, is that therapeutic? Is it hard to shift gears? Is that another um, uh, portion of your brain you have to utilize, or is it just opportunity that that's what you need to write at that time? Are they harder to write than, than comedy? No. No. It's, I, I think it's equal. Sometimes humor is a little harder to write than, than a, a dramatic piece. So it's, I think you have a, a little more liberty with fiction and creating uh, your characters and whatnot. You, if you're writing humor, you know, you you have to set up that character to be funny. You can't have any, uh, you can't let anything draw it down. So I, 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 I feel good, you know, dramatic fiction is a little easier to, for me to write. Mm -hmm. I like to combine both in a piece because I think it mm -hmm. can make the funny funnier and the dark darker and um, you asked if it's therapeutic uh, if anyone came if anyone came from a dysfunctional family you'll know that one of the ways people cope is with humor 
And so when you write your story and you have the dark in there and you have the light in there, it's, I think it's definitely a way of working through mm -hmm. that particular incident. I think it's, it's definitely therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and finally, before we turn it over to uh, Q&A, um, we just want to talk about the craft of writing humor. We kind of touched on it because it is true. It, doing stand-up comedy, it, it, I, mean, that I think comedy is the hardest because it implies that you're going to elicit a specific response over and over again, you know, a, a, an emotional response. Where drama and fiction and other, it, it kind of is a slower build and, and you can let an audience uh, kind of absorb it more. But, but trying to be funny, it either is or, or, or sings or it doesn't. Um, do you use any... When you're, when you're writing a comedy piece, are you thinking about the craft at all as like the rule of three or any tricks of the trade that you use that, that uh, set up punchlines or any of that stuff, or is it just roll? So, some of it's like telling a joke, mm -hmm. you know, you, 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 even if it's a short thing, you know, it, it, you just, with humor writing, you build and slapstick, <coughs> you know, a thousand things you can use. Usually with a punch Yeah, um, I don't know if there's any formula or anything like that. I mean, besides that, don't plagiarize. Or, you know, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, I sort of have a routine. I always, I always read these certain things before each column, and hopefully, hopefully it'll give me some ideas. But it's like I'll read, uh, well, of course, the Daily Paper, and I'll read the uh, Huffington Post, and I'll read uh, Dave Barry's blog, and I'll read, um, <coughs> I'm, like, I'm like a guy who works for a Sarasota paper, David Grimes, reading what he says, and, uh, and sometimes it'll kick loose an idea and, mm -hmm. and, and get me started, uh, but often I just punt from there too, but um, um, I don't know, I, I try to avoid the uh, uh, Getting mean spirited or uh, a political, a whole very political anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I think everybody reads me like gets has an idea where I'm coming from, but I don't like to be preachy, or, and I don't like to read people who are preachy. And, uh, mm -hmm. It's interesting to have a point of view, but <coughs> at the same time temperate. Um, okay, what time is it? Okay. Um, Let's go to some Q&A, and if we don't have any, I've got some more questions, but anybody have some questions for a panelist, uh, individually or as a whole? Yes, sir. Is there anything, uh, subject area that's taboo that you want to take care of? Not me. <laughs> if it might be taboo, you, ch you change names. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. What was the bet you guys had? Oh, that's heavy. I'll bet you we don't tell you. <laughs> Come on. I'll get out of Karen easy. later. It was easy. I'll get out of Karen later. It won't later. happen again. No, actually, I, I got to read that. I'm, I'm going to take that piece on with me, Beth. <laughs> Rockettes and tubes? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. When you write, when you write humor, are you are you thinking about is this going to be funny to somebody else or is it just funny to you? Everybody has a different sense of humor. So when you write it, are you are you trying to are you targeting an audience? I worry about that all the time. I often laugh at inappropriate things. And <laughs> Me I, too. And I worry <laughs> that nobody else is going to think it's funny. And sometimes I will have like a, a sentence or something in a, in a column that I'm like. Really excited about. It. I think it's just hilarious. And my husband, he's sitting back there in the yellow shirt. Yeah. Could you be more specific? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he'll read it, and he doesn't get it at all. And I'm like so proud of this line, and it's just so I know I missed. That was on the West Virginia Writers Facebook wall when we were talking about that. Didn't was it Cat or said you write the piece and it entertains you, and it may or may not entertain somebody else. Yeah. I make a lot of references to things that nobody else. I feel like that. I understand Gary Larson better because I make a lot of jokes about things that nobody else has ever read or heard of or watched. I am just like, and, and thank God I've got people that pull that out for me because nobody ever 
understand it. But it does have to make you laugh, uh, you know, before you get that. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah, and that, that, I mean, that kind of leads to where I was, what I was thinking about is regional humor is oftentimes an inside joke. You know, you understand it better if you live in the area. So how do you open up the inside joke? I mean, that's kind of a, that's, that's part of the craft, isn't it? How do you open up the inside joke so that people reading your stories see the humor, understand it? It's like, it's like any story. You, you've got to give the reader, you got to put them to work. you got to give them some ownership to educate them. Uh, it's part of the setup. You know, it's just like a, you know, a dramatic piece about uh, someone dying in a coal mine. You, know, you, you teach them about mining for a little bit. You know, you show them what it's like to go home and try to wash the black out, you know. You, know, you, give, you, you, you put them to work. But that's how I do it. You know, not everybody in here is Pentecostal, you know. You have to. But I would bet there's there's universal components of it, regardless of what region it's in, that, that uh, uh, can strike home. But, but it, sometimes that does get in the way, the, the dialect or the reference points that nobody gets. And, and the joke is gone, and I, that if, is a if challenge. If Diane's voice was a couple octaves lower, I could have swore I was listening to Garrison Keillor. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's about all we have, boy, and I have not. Sidetrack top, we uh, go feel better a little bit later. Let's see, any other questions? Okay, I've also, in closing, I have asked each of our panelists to bring us a closing bit, a little anecdote, something they want to share for the good of the order. Let's leave us lap. Before we do so, I want to point out there are uh, evaluation forms over there. The book fest gets better every year because they learn from you all what, what happened. And if you liked it, fill one out. If you don't, just keep moving. Uh, so, for the good of the order, uh, we'll start with Karen and work our way down with our parting shots, so to speak. What's the best thing to ever come out of Ohio? Oh. <laughs> Raiders ice cream, Interstate 70. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read a piece. It's a short one. Um, and when we were talking about like dysfunctional families, <coughs> the brother in here, John, um, he's he's my favorite brother. But don't let that leave the room. Exceedingly, exceedingly angry young man. This is from a piece called Playing Favorites that was on my blog just last month. John isn't my only brother, but for some reason I like him best. I have no idea why. He did, after all, try to kill me once on the chocolate milk colored sofa in the basement. After I told him no way he was going to my ninth grade prom, he was too old, two years and three months my senior. And besides, it was my dance, not his. And did he not know what Tammy Carter did with Joey Howard behind the convenient mart? Did he really want to go out with a girl like that? He launched at me, hands all T-Rex clawed, his metal mouth gleaming through a froth, crammed my head into the arm of the couch, choked me until I saw stars, then nothing. Mom, I yelled after I came to, John tried to murder me. I blacked out, I'm serious. She didn't answer. Turned out she was out back picking zinnias and cherry tomatoes. <laughs> I'm going to give you another page from the book. This is uh, kind of a flashback from where this mother and child came from. Uh, a place called Otter Holler. Carol didn't think Halloween was that big a deal. Of course, she didn't remember that much about it. Back in the holler, all Halloween amounted to was a bowl of popcorn and some pranks. Oh, there was the usual bag of cat shit on fire on somebody's porch or a tossed egg or two. And then there were the cane boys. The canes were brave and brazen, and they only found these qualities in a bottle of their daddy's moonshine. So far this Halloween night, they beat up the Fremont boy, lit the gas tank on old Mrs. Wimbin's washing machine on fire, and axed out the floor of Deverick's outhouse. Finally, the brothers got to Helen's little house. Tom Kane, the oldest, knew that Ted was overseas, and the liquor helped him with the rest. He threw a sheet over his head and stood in front of the door. Trick or treat in there, he howled. Helen glanced through the curtain at the staggering sheet holding an oil lantern. Oh boy, she said. 
quickly got her coat, walked past sleeping Carol, and stepped through the door, quietly pulling it shut. What do you boys want, she asked. The sheep staggered forward. Well, I'm the ghost of Halloween, and I'll give people what they need, and tonight I'm going to give you what you need, little lady. Then he pantomimed the act of love. <laughs> the hunching sheep was a sight. Almost to herself, Helen responded, sometimes I give people what they need, too. She shifted her coat to one side, and her slender arm raised a Colt hog-leg pistol. The Colt revolver bucked in her hand like a fire-breathing bull. When the gun was empty, Carol stepped into the living room, dropped the revolver on the couch, picked up the Winchester 30 caliber rifle, and returned to the porch. Helen took a couple of final shots above the sheets as they disappeared up the road. <laughs> Trick or treat my ass, you whispered. <laughs> Halloween was over and all. Those are those are hard acts to follow. Uh, where I sit in the in the Charleston Gazette newsroom, I hear the police scanners going constantly, and uh, sometimes it's the source of some interesting comments. And, like I think it was Thursday, there was a call from uh, on the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department, and there was a uh, we have a we, we have a car, a disabled car in the creek. I forget which creek it was, and I thought, well, let's wonder how they got there. Then uh, a few minutes later, somebody calls back and says, we need to get a tow truck there. Um, it's blocking traffic. Well, let's hear more, Brandon. Once again, we'll have video of this panel on our YouTube channel at some point in the next couple of weeks. We'll also soon have both the audio and video of the interview I recorded between Dr. Edwina Pendarvis and National Book Award winner Jamie Gordon. She's the author of the book Lord of Misrule. That will be next time for the West Virginia Writers Podcast. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Fowle. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found via popswalker.com and cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded in Charleston, West Virginia and assembled atop a hill in Mercer County.